Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us again for All Things Evangelism. This is where we sit down with a special guest who has passion for God and for Scripture, and we talk about anything that has to do with bringing people to Jesus, bringing people to a knowledge of the truth of the Son of God. And so I'm privileged to have uh, Lyle Southwell on the podcast again today. Thanks, Lyle, for joining Nah, great to be here. Yeah, you guys may know Lyle. He is the Faith FM Morning Show host. He's Conference Evangelism in North New South Wales Conference. And he's a friend and a colleague. He gets to um, work with me and I get to work with him. And so, yeah, I know that you guys are all very jealous of me. Wouldn't you say, Lyle, they're jealous, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> nah, we just have a great team at the yeah. department. So, yeah. It's Amen. It's, it's a blessing just to be a Seventh-day Adventist, isn't it? Because we get to fellowship with people who love God, who love the Bible, and who want to see Jesus come again. And, and this is what we're talking about today, right, Lyle? Like the second coming of Jesus and the prophecies, really the prophecies forecast his coming and talk about future events. And the, the podcast today is entitled The Purpose of Prophecy. And you love prophecy so much, and that's why we had you on. And uh, is it okay if I just roll you the dice and say, hey, you want to just jump into this subject? What is the purpose of prophecy? Yeah, there's probably a whole bunch of areas in which we can begin this conversation. One of my one of my favorite places to start this conversation, why prophecy? Why does prophecy exist? Why is there so much prophecy in the Bible? Is is the story of Cyrus. And Cyrus was obviously Persian Empire, really founded the Persian Empire. He's a pagan. He doesn't have, you know, any background in an understanding of Yahweh and so forth. But 150 years before he before he came to power, you've got this great prophecy in Isaiah where the Bible talks about Cyrus, it talks about his profession, it talks about his heritage, it, talk, it gives his name, it talks about the strategies that he will use, particularly in overcoming Babylon, it talks about the reaction of the, of the Babylonian kings, and it gives all of these details, like a lot of fine details in relationship to Cyrus. And you might ask the question, why is God giving this particular prophecy? And why is he singling this particular person out and calling him to a particular work because then of course he goes on to call Cyrus to to rebuild the temple and to release the Jewish people out of their captivity which Cyrus goes on to do and you can read it all in Isaiah 44 and 45 but when you go down to let me see here say verse 5 for Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect I have called you by your name I have surnamed you though you did not know me I am the Lord there is no one else there is no God beside me. I clothed you, though you had not known me, that they may come from the rising of the sun, from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no one else. And so when you read this particular passage, you've got this theme that just comes through over and over again, where God is introducing himself to, he's introducing himself to Cyrus long before Cyrus is born. But in introducing himself to Cyrus, what he's actually doing is, is saying over and over again, I'm God, there's no one else. Okay, so you've grown up in Persia, and in Persia you have all these Persian gods. You've taken the empire of Lydia, and they have all of their gods from Asia Minor, all these Lydian gods over there in what is modern-day Turkey. You've taken Babylon, and there's a whole slew of Babylonian gods. You've got your sights set on Egypt. There's 3,500 Egyptian gods. But in actual fact, Cyrus, there's only one, and it's me. And uh, at that particular point, if you were Cyrus, you'd be like, okay, so you're making a big claim here. That's a massive claim considering how many gods he's had to deal with in his life, that one of them would have the gall to come along and actually say, none of these other ones exist, I'm the only one that exists. In Cyrus's mind, of course, and in the mind of his armies, 
they have been fighting the gods of all of these nations that they have been attacking. As they've come, come to Babylon, Nabonidus was just super unpopular in Babylon because he's an Assyrian, they don't like, and he spent most of his time separating himself from Babylon. He's let his son reign, Belshazzar reign in Babylon, where they actually like Belshazzar because he does carry Nebuchadnezzar's blood. And, and so he's absented himself from that. But when he comes back, you know, he's got this strategy of, like, okay, how do I gain the allegiance of the Babylonian troops that aren't so keen on me? And so what he's done is he's raided the entire countryside, the entire Babylonian empire, and taken all the gods of all the cities captive, taken them back to Babylon and held them to ransom to ensure that the Babylonians will actually fight for him. And Cyrus, he's conquered all of this. He's conquered Babylon. He's, the Bible talks about you know, the feast hall of, of Belshazzar when Daniel goes in there and there's the gods of gold and silver and brass and iron, etc., that see not nor hear and, and, and so forth. And the reason is that every single Babylonian god had been carried off to Babylon as captives. And of course, Cyrus has conquered all of those. And then God introduces himself to Cyrus and says, okay, those gods don't exist. Your Persian gods don't exist. The Median gods don't exist. The Lydian gods, they don't exist. When you go down to Egypt, they'll have, you know, like thousands of them. None of those exist. I'm the only one. It's a big claim to make. And he backs it up. He's like, okay, I've made this big claim and here's how I'm going to back it up. Here's how I'm going to prove it to you. This is the evidence that I'm going to give you that you can actually believe this claim. All right, here's what I've done 150 years ago. I named you, I specified your profession, I specified your relationship to the Jewish people, I specified what you would do in relationship to my temple. And you've got to remember that this is the God of a micronation that is speaking to, to, to Cyrus at this particular point in time. This is, I've, I've specified how you would capture the city of Babylon. I've specified Belshazzar's reaction to you attacking, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He says, I've specified yeah. all of this detail, boom, boom, so that you can know that I am actually the only God. Because if Yahweh had come to Cyrus and said, I'm the God of, of Judah and I'm the only one, you would think, well, that's like a tiny nation. You'd imagine that there'd be claims to truth and divinity from all of those worship systems that center around all of those gods from all of those nations. Exactly. So on what grounds do you accept the claims of this one? Yeah, yeah, it's not like it's a it's sure. not like it's a significant nation. Surely, if any gods at this particular point in history were going to claim legitimacy, it would be the Persian gods because they've just gone out and conquered the whole world. Yep. Jerusalem yep. has been conquered by the Assyrians. It's been conquered by the Babylonians. It's the Egyptians have gone through and conquered it from time to time. There's small nations down there that have been tremendous threats to, to this tiny nation of Judah. Why would you take any notice of this one? But when anyone take... comes along and gives prophecies, like, okay, which one of the other gods has actually given prophecy? You've got, and this is one of the things that we also see in our world today, because the Bible is unique amongst the holy texts of various different faiths. In the about a third of the Bible is made up of. You don't find that in the Quran. You don't find that, you know, in your Hindu, Buddhist, etc. The the, the the other sacred texts of the other religions. It just doesn't exist. Yeah, you're highlighting so many things that I think are important. And one is that on what grounds do you accept the claims of any belief system? And the world of confusion, there's a world of voices and beliefs and perspectives and views. And we ourselves are limited in our capacity to understand and to know. So how can you find what's true? How can you know what's true? We have a limited ability to discover and to understand, right, as individual human beings, because we're not perfect. And our abilities to see and think 
and observe are not perfect either. And then you, you add to that that we're in a world of chaos and confusion as far as it concerns religion and faith and belief. And how is someone going to know the truth and the true God? And so God, he extraordinarily predicts the future to help us. It's almost like an act of mercy in, in some respects. Uh, that's the thought that comes to my mind. And something else that I think is fascinating that comes out of what you're saying, and you've answered the question in such an interesting way, bro, is that the scripture says about itself that it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. So as I interact with God's word, I learn about myself, right? My heart is, conf- I'm confused. What do I think? What do I feel? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? Like mm-hmm. our hearts deceive us. And the book of Proverbs says, whoever follows after their own heart is a fool. Man's perception is limited mm-hmm. and man's heart is deceptive. And so how can we know? How can we understand? But the Bible helps me to discern the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. And so it's like, I, I'm, I'm, I discover myself through the Bible. And as I read it, I see things that are just like, wow, that's true. And it almost seems to a degree that that's what prophecy does for you. Like it, it gives you the ability to trust the things that the Bible says about yourself. You can read the Bible and go, wow, this has the ring of truth. Like, how did this know my thoughts? How did this know my mind? There's an internal witness of the Spirit. And I read this Bible and it's, yeah, I, I get it. Like this, there's a sense, of, there's a lot of people who accept the Bible because they just read it and they just say, this is just true. Yeah. Uh, no, nothing's been more true to me. But then the the prophetic record of the Bible, all the prophetic messages of the Bible, they basically do for history what the just specific testimonies do for you. They explain it. They articulate it ahead of time. They and, and you say to yourself, how did it know this? Like how did it get this right? And I think that's something that is speaking to me out of what you're saying. And I don't know if, if all of that I've just said just makes sense because I didn't say it in the best way, but I'm just saying that prophecy speaks in such a way that you can see the testimony of the Bible is true. One, of the, one, one way of looking at it is like this, and that is that without the supernatural, religion doesn't exist. So if you take the supernatural out of religion, what you are left is a philosophy or an ideology that you choose to live by. So for instance, if you take Islam or Buddhism or Christianity and you remove the supernatural so that there's nothing left that is supernatural, So that obviously does away with God, it does away with miracles, it does away with Jesus, it does away with prophecy, it does away with all of that. You don't have religion left. You can still live a Christian lifestyle, but it's not a religion because there's no supernatural. It's a philosophy or an ideology that you live by. The thing that actually makes a religion is the existence of the supernatural. And when it comes to prophecy, what God is revealing is that the supernatural is real, it exists, And it's accessible to everybody because we always bump into people who have had supernatural experiences and we hear their stories, we hear their testimonies. But what if you and I have never had a supernatural experience? How do we relate to that? How do we believe that? How do we trust that? How do we not be skeptical? The answer is by making the supernatural available and accessible to every single person, which is what God is doing through prophecy. And once you've got prophecy and you've established the existence of the supernatural, then all that is left is to establish the correct way of interacting with the supernatural. That's a great point. That's a great point. And in a way that kind of aligns, you said the essential point that I wanted to communicate, you just said it better than I did. And what God did for Cyrus in pointing out aspects of his life before he existed is what God does for all of us Mm -hmm. in a sense with prophecy. And it's so I can see God tracing the course of history before history unfolded. And so he's 
doing me the same favor that he did to to Cyrus. And that's it's a really merciful and loving thing to do. It is. And it, it gives is. me grounds for faith. And it gives me, I don't know how to say this, like, you've ever met someone, Lyle, who is very intuitive. They're very discerning. And they they say things to you, and it just, it's it hits you. And you think, man, how do you get that? I've had situations where people would say something about me or something I've done. And then five years, and I, it tickles your fancy. It does something to your mind, but you don't understand what's just happened. And then five years later, you're like, wow, how did they know that? How did they see that? Like, how did they get that about me? I think that's what happens to you when you read scripture seriously and sincerely. You just get this sense of like, how does this book, how does, how did the prophets get this stuff, you know, about me? It's almost like it speaks right into your life and gets you. And you can, you have, you can have that experience with scripture and that can serve as grounds for faith, but you add prophecy to that. And now it's, it's like a double whammy for, for faith, in my estimation. It certainly is. It, it is that there are many people who have that supernatural experience for themselves with God, which is a very personal experience. And there are others who, before they can even be in a mind frame, in a mindset to experience something like that, need rational reason for their belief. It comes mm-hmm. down to what the Bible says about faith in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11. The faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And the two key words within that passage in my mind is substance and evidence. And so often what we find you know, in the world today is that we have a world that looks at Christianity and it's, well, they're people of faith. We're, we're people of evidence, they're people of faith. Faith is believing in something that you have no evidence for. And the Bible turns around and says, no, God is never going to ask you to be irrational. God is never going to ask you to do away with reason. The opposite. God wants you to embrace the rational. He wants you to embrace the reason in accepting things by faith because God is going to give you an abundance of evidence on which you can accept the things that we accept by faith, like his grace and his mercy and his love and so forth. And the best evidence that God is giving to us for a rational person to just sit down, study, do a scientific approach to it, whatever, is prophecy. And this is why the Bible is so full of it. One of the things that that, that really disturbs me is that this is the portion of the Bible that in Christianity today is the most ignored. And I think that as Christians, we have a lot and have lost a lot because we just don't go there as far as... Pro- now, as, as you and I, where Seventh-day Adventists go and prophecies like our bread and butter, for sure. But when I'm talking about generally Christianity, it's not an area that is preached. It's not an area that is taught. And as a result of that, we have actually created this environment where the world looks at us as you guys are... Faith is believing things you don't have an evidence for. Yeah, uh, and how can you love God with all your heart, mind, and strength if your faith is unintelligent? right? If, if you have a incoherent faith that's based on assumptions and hopes, and that's it, how can you love God with your mind? There's a psalm, I think it's Psalm 47. It, there's a verse in the psalm that says, praise ye the Lord, all who have understanding. And so it's saying, hey, listen, what are you praising if you don't have reasons and substance behind your praise, right? It's just speculative worship, right? Is that it? And does God expect that people no longer are rational? And isn't rationality a part of the image of God in man? Like God is a reasonable being. He can reason, he can think, he's logical. And so he creates us in his image. and And a large part of what makes us human is the ability to reason and to think and to make sense of things. 
And so why in the world would the reasonable God who created reasonable creatures demand an unreasonable faith? Like that, that just makes no sense whatsoever. It's just, it's a bit silly that this kind of dichotomy is, is this false dichotomy is presented in the world. That's faith. And this is evidence-based. And it's no, not really. There's evidence to suggest God exists. And, and we base faith in what we don't comprehend, which humans can't comprehend everything. Mm-hmm. We, we exercise faith in those areas, just like the scientific materialist exercises faith in certain areas as well. They would never ever say that because they lack the humility to admit and to confess that they, they bridge their gaps with faith and assumption and speculation. But yeah, it's crazy. Hey. It is. And it's not the rational side of Christianity is not the be all and the end all of Christianity. We all know that. We get that. Christianity is an experiential religion and it, it's something that you experience. We're not denying that in any way, shape or form. We're just pointing out that if you have just experience without any rational foundation for it, it becomes a very weak Christianity, just as if you have a very rational Christianity without any experience. It's also a very weak Christianity. Neither of those is going to survive. And this is why God is one of the reasons why God has given us. We're just looking at one of the reasons here, really, why God has given us so much prophecy. (laughs) This is a big subject that we could talk about for a very long time. I remember, you know, last time we did a podcast on this was probably a year or so ago, and we went down a very different path in relationship to the whole discussion on why God gives. Yeah, I wanted to share something with you, bro, that you probably thought of before. In Daniel chapter 9 is one of the most compelling prophecies in all of the Bible, and it forecasts the coming of the Savior, the Messiah, the anointed prince. And it basically, it gives you a starting date for when the time prophecy begins, and it's the going forth of a commandment to restore civil authority and to repair Jerusalem, uh, to physically and legislatively restore the nation to rebuild and restore the nation. And, that, and then it says, and it says, until Messiah the Prince will be a certain amount of time. So fascinating prophecy, amazing prophecy. At the beginning of chapter nine, before Daniel, the Hebrew captive gets the prophecy, the Bible says that he's searching the Bible. Like he's having, a, he's having Bible studies and he's doing it to discover God's will. And he's studying the prophecies of, of Jeremiah, the, the, the Jewish prophet. And he discovers that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed for 70 years. And he can identify in time that he's living at the end of that time frame. Mm-hmm. And so he, he's prompted to pray. And he, the first 20 verses of the chapter, basically the, from chapter verse like four or five to verse 20, it's like him praying until an angel comes. And in this prayer, he's beseeching God to forgive the people, to restore the people. He's confessing his sins, their sins. It's a very beautiful, open-hearted prayer. And it just teaches us so much, this little story of Daniel and the purpose of prophecy. So he is given a sense of how he should live and act when he discovers where he is in the light of prophecy. So the prophecy is, it's almost like a map in time where you know where you are. So you look at a map and you say, okay, this is where I, this is where I am. And since this is where I am and that's where I want to go, this is how I have to travel. And so prophecy, you go, okay, this is where I am in the course of time. And it educates you about what is relevant, what is real. So it's God saying, hey, let me give you how I see things. And if you can see how I see things, you can know best how you're supposed to respond to the world around you and behave in the days that you live in. And and something else, it's so brilliant that you learn from that is that Daniel prays for the fulfillment of the prophecy. So he doesn't suppose that since God prophesied something was going to happen, that it it must happen like with, with or without him. He actually sees it as a call for him to work with God to fulfill that prophecy. Mm. It, it's, if you read it, it's clear. Daniel's relationship with the Bible, where it's God just spoke to me through that prophecy, and I'm going to get to work praying to God 
so that this prophecy can be fulfilled, that the nation of Israel can be restored. So it's, he's not like a determinist. He's not thinking God gives predictions and it like it's all determined to happen without me. He realizes that the future is open to a degree and that God is predicting what's going to happen because he sees what's going to happen, but it's not. But Daniel, he as an individual is a fulfillment, is a part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. Yeah. You could almost say that he was looking for and hastening the restoration of yes. the Jewish people in the region. Yes, temple. exactly. Yeah, wow. Exactly. That's awesome. Great. It's story. radical. It uh-huh. gives you, it's, it's a hermeneutical, like what theologians would call it. It teaches you the hermeneutical approach to Bible study of Daniel the prophet. He sees the prophecy and he's, oh, just because God said it doesn't mean it's going to happen without me. I'm a part of its fulfillment. And he jumps in there and starts praying and beseeching God. And then he gets the prophecy that, yes, the city's going to be re- restored and, and rebuilt in a specific amount of time. And it's awesome. It's just amazing. And that's a part of the purpose of prophecy. So those are two points. And the first is that you know how to behave when you know where you are. Right? Yeah, I want, to just, I, want to just, I want to just focus in on that for a moment and, and just sort of think about it this way. How would you and I feel if we were living right now and uh, prophecy didn't exist and we're Christians and we see the systematically the systematic dismantling of the family of the natural order, the legislating basically of Sodom and Gomorrah being just taught in our schools, the indoctrination of our young people. Then we looked and saw the rise of evolution and that the scoffers scoffing and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming? Everything continues as it were from the beginning, and they you know bring up all of these arguments of uniformitarianism and so forth. And we saw the then, then we saw the erosion of religious liberty that was happening in relationship to Christianity. And I don't know about you, but I would find that incredibly discouraging. As mm-hmm. We're Christians. We're on the back foot right here. This is not going the way that it should be going. It's going the complete opposite direction. If I look into the future, I see a world that is devoid of Christianity. That would be, that would really mess with your head. But when you've been preaching your whole life that there's going to be a systematic dismantling of the family, that there's going to be a systematic dismantling of religious liberty, that scoffers are going to be scoffing about the, the concept of you know, creation and so forth. And we could go on and on down through the list. When you've been preaching that for your whole life, and in my case, that's about 30 years that I've been preaching that message, rather than being incredibly discouraged by it, I'm almost a little bit relieved. My grandfather preached all this and he never saw it happen. What would it be like to be my grandfather and come to the end of his life and have never seen happen what he preached? Mm -hmm. He believed it. He never wavered in his belief. But I get to preach it and then I get to see it happen. That gives me just so much courage in my Christian experience and so much confidence in Jesus Christ. Makes you stronger. Oh, infinitely stronger. And and, and I really do wonder, where would I be as a Christian? And and Christians that don't have a foundation in prophecy, it's like, where would you be right now? How terrible would would it be for you to be a Christian right now seeing all of this happen, seeing Satan just winning over and over and over and over again, and seeing Christianity disappearing from the earth, how would you feel? It'd be terrifying. It'd be terrifying. It would be discouraging. It'd be like, and but yet we have prophecy. And because we have prophecy, it's actually lift up your heads because of your redemption. That's right. That's right. It's funny because every time I get myself super stressed, Lyle, because the world is going insane. And obviously the world's always been insane, right? It's this welcome to earth, but just different degrees of the same insanity as far as human history is concerned. But when it just seems, wow, this 
the country I love, the society I love and care for, it's just lost its mind. That I, the thing that comforts me is Jesus is coming. If it wasn't that's, happening, that's if it wasn't happening. That's the hope of the world. Yeah, our faith would be in vain. Yeah, and you think how about, stressful? Yep. And that's one of the things that I go back to when I see all of this, and I get stressed by it. I go back to, okay, wait a minute. What if this wasn't happening? We'd just be preaching, preaching, nothing happening. That's a bit rough, bro. It's I know that there's a different there's different ways to interpret the passage. In different versions of scripture, reflect this. I think it's Second Peter one. Some versions say we have a more. When Peter describes his seeing Jesus and the voice on the Mount of Transfiguration, those who are familiar will, will remember this, but I can't explain it all for those who don't. But he says, "Look, I saw all this stuff. I'm an eyewitness to this gospel message that I'm preaching, and I saw Jesus light up like the sun." And then he says, "But I have a more sure word of prophecy." That's one way to interpret the text. Other interpret other Bible translations interpret it. Hence, we have the prophetic word confirmed. Or in other words, they're saying one way to interpret that passage is the prophecies are more sure than what you with your eyes. Another way to interpret that you know, Greek text is when we saw with our eyes the glory of the Son of God, it confirmed the prophetic word. Mm-hmm. So we had the prophecies and they led us to a point. And then we saw what the prophecies always predicted would happen. And in a way, what you're saying is you have the prophetic word confirmed through what we're seeing in the world around us. Before before we kind of wrap things up, not that we're going to wrap things up in the next 20 seconds, but in the next few minutes. But Lyle, I, I think one of the reasons why we don't maybe value the prophecies as much as we should in the Christian church as a whole, and even in Adventism to a lesser extent, is that it's associated with fanaticism and instability and kind of conspiratorial thinking. So there, if you look onto YouTube, or uh, I think YouTube probably primarily, conspiracy videos get tons and tons of views. There's a lot of interest in conspiracies. and But in society, there's a there's kick against that. There's pushback against that where mainstream academia, mainstream media really stigmatizes the conspiratorial or what is seen to be conspiratorial. And in many respects, we would say, yeah, we don't agree with speculative theories and wild-eyed assertions. We're advo- we always advocate for clear thinking, reasoned thinking, careful thinking before you come to conclusions, for sure. So it seems to me like God has given prophetic messages, and they're often encoded in symbolic images. And because there's so much conspiracy people out there and wild-eyed fanatics out there, we sometimes in the church want to distance ourselves from that. So we throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I, you, you, that's not a good thing to do, right? Don't throw away a, presage, a precious message from God that is invaluable because it may be associated with elements in society that you don't want to be associated with. That would be like Jesus coming to earth and not associating with certain people because the religious establishment had stigmatized those people. Like I just think we as Christ followers should reclaim our prophetic brand. Like God gave us a message to proclaim to the world, and by and large, that's what we should be doing. And even if, yeah, you get what I'm trying to say. Like do, sometimes we want to be so Jesus centered, which is which we should be, that we distance ourselves from prophetic messages that come from Jesus because we're afraid of being associated with people. That well, want to be associated we're associated. So we we have a knee jerk reaction against conspiracy theorists. And I've been doing a bit of thinking about this lately. This is my thoughts. So my first line of thoughts, of course, the whole COVID crisis has really brought to the front every conspiracy theory that there is out there, along with people that are open to conspiracy theories. And so I've been doing some thought on this. 
And it started by myself asking myself the question, why is it that Christians are susceptible to conspiracy theories? And then I went from there and I was like, okay, but there's a lot of non-Christian people out there that are into conspiracy theories as well. What makes them susceptible? And what it comes down to is a lack of trust of the establishment. So when I'm talking about the establishment, the scientific, the media, the politics that are, have a particular narrative. And when we don't trust those, then we become open to conspiracy theories. Now, so you get things like, if we look back at the at our recent history, there's no way that ScoMo is going to win the election in Australia, and then he does. All of the experts said it would be impossible, but that's not what happened. There's no way that Britain is going to exit the, the Brexit is going to take place and they're going to leave the European Union. And then and then you've got Russia colluded in, in, in giving Trump the election, and then they didn't. And then Biden stole the election off Trump, and then he didn't. And so you're getting all of these narratives that are being fed to us through the media from the experts who get on the media and they have all of their facts and they have it all lined up and they detail how it all happened. And then later on, we find out that actually that wasn't the case. And what that does is it breeds distrust in the average person who's actually thinking about these things in their mind. And once that distrust has been created in their minds, they are then open, their minds are open to conspiracy theories. And so they can go down the whole conspiracy theory uh, rabbit warren. So then, Mm -hmm. so that was where my mind went. And I'm like, okay, what about Christians? Why are Christians susceptible to conspiracy theories? And what it comes down to is this. For you and I as a Christian, there is nothing more important and real than our daily experience with Jesus. And yet the same experts and the same establishment, the scientific community, the political commentators, the, the thought leaders in our world, et cetera, et cetera, they are all telling us that the very real experience that you and I have is a figment of our imagination. And of course, we don't believe them. All right. Fact, That's a good point. You know? What they, they yeah, so we're going to be more, more naturally susceptible to believe anything disparaging anything that discounts them because we already want to discount them because they're disparaging our faith experience. And it's not just that they're disparaging our faith experience, but they are stating that something that is real is not real. And we can we know that it's right. real. We experience totally. it as being real. <laughs> right. And right. If, if they if we can't trust them in relationship to our lived experience, then how can we trust them in other areas? And so what that does is it breeds within Christians a natural distrust of the establishment. And so that was the next place that my mind went. It's like, okay, now I understand why Christians can be susceptible to conspiracy theories. It's because it's a lack of distrust amongst the establishment. The next place that my mind went was that for a person to become a Christian, they need to be open-minded to the concept of having a relationship with someone that they don't see every day. That takes a certain level of open-mindedness. And to have that level of open-mindedness You've got to have a certain level of distrust of the establishment to be able to be open to that kind of an idea because the establishment says, you know, that's not a thing, it doesn't happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think we actually do ourselves a disservice when we separate ourselves so vehemently from the conspiracy theorists because we're actually separating ourselves from the people who are open-minded enough to actually give Jesus a try. Now, clearly, there are many people in our world today who are so open-minded, their brains have fallen out. And that's not what we're talking about because we've just had a whole discussion about how important rational thinking is 
to accepting Jesus Christ. I, I guess this is on, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent here, Matt, which I wasn't intending to go off on. But <laughs> no, it's a, it's good. It, was a great, it was a great psychoanalysis of the susceptibility of Christians to conspiracy theories. I actually think it was really interesting, man. I loved it. Yeah, but it's something that I'm working on in my mind and I'm looking at and, okay, and asking myself the question, okay, where is the low-hanging fruit for evangelism? And it's people who are open-minded enough to be willing to give Jesus a question. Reply. All right. Well, it's a question. That's right. Where are we going to find those people who are open-minded enough to give Jesus a try? Totally. Here's the thing, man. We've got to be broad, truly broad-minded believers and Christians. I was at the Gold Coast one day, and I'm walking down the pathway. It was like right there at Coolangatta Beach, and it's like a trendy, fashionable place, good-looking people, shops, beach, sun, beautiful environment. And I'm just having a great time walking with Sharice and the boys they're playing or something on the swings and I see this guy in his car and he's just sitting there man and he looks really intense he just looks intense as could be and it looks like he's praying it just looks like he's just doing his prayer thing and I just started to watch him you watch someone and you don't like stare at them so that they know that you're watching them but I kept my eye on him to see what's this guy about like you're gonna pull out a shotgun and start like going crazy on people or what he looked unstable he looked pretty intense his car was really raggedy and, and beat up whatever. Anyway, so I'm not judging the guy. I just noticed him. He's standing out. And then he gets out of his car and he's got this like device attached to his body. And it's some kind of strap that he's attached like a jukebox to, an old school jukebox. And he and, and this guy's got like placards like stuck all over his body with Bible verses. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. The, the typical come to Jesus, Baptist, once saved, always saved Bible verses. And so I know I've, uh, here's a street preacher, man. He's just going to start coming out here and calling everyone to repentance. And man, there was a part of my heart that felt so sympathetic and so tender towards that guy where I just thought, what? God bless him. Whatever kind of warped view of reality he has in his mind, whatever level of instability he has, look at him. Like he's standing up for the God that he knows and he's weird and quirky and awkward and he has no social awareness. If God can't get the sophisticated, if God can't get the more moderate in mind, he gets the crazy guy. And I'm not saying that God was with him or God wasn't with him. I I made no judgments. I'm just saying that a a tenderness was born in my heart for this guy because I thought, man, look at him. I see Mormons walking down the street with their little badges, these 20-year-old kids looking like dorks, like walking down the street. Because of what they believe. Like, I have a level of respect for that. Not that I believe what they believe, not that I advocate that you do everything the way they do it, but I just have a level of respect for people who actually stand for something, they express what they believe. So, anyways, this guy, like, he gets out of his car, man, and he has this look of a guy going to, to the championship game. And he walks by me, and I look at him, I said, God bless you, brother. I'll be praying for you. He said, thanks, man. He almost started to cry. He literally almost started to cry. And he actually just ended up walking. He just started playing music. And it was like a beautiful gospel. Like it was amazing grace. And he just started to try to hand out tracts. You know, that's all he was doing in his quirky weirdo kind of a way. And uh, you look, man, I'm not saying that Christians should do that or be that or any, but, but here's a guy who's doing what he can do in his own weird way. And so anyways, bro, bro so we got to stop with that. I'm sorry to have to take the last like comment. I know you got probably lots of things you'd want to say, but we get, we get, you're welcome here all the time, and you can come anytime. We'll, we need to continue this because there's like 15 other purposes for prophecy that we not, did not talk about. I'd like to encourage you guys listening to this podcast to reclaim the prophetic brand of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And yes, it has become associated in some circles with conspiratorial thinking and making wild conclusions that you cannot substantiate. Nothing could be further from prophecy than that. Prophecy, to truly understand it, requires study, careful attention, and and I would just say a balanced mind. 
and, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. So, guys, God bless you. I think we should all praise God for the gift that he has given us in the great prophecies of Scripture. They are sent from a God of love to people that he wants to communicate with and save forever. God bless you guys, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Lyle, for coming on.